0: ian thank you for being here thanks for having us episode um, 27 of the treatment room secrets podcast um super excited i you know we, we've been speaking now for a while um so we, we should be loose and uh, warmed up and ready to go um probably i'm assuming the main topic of our discussion today will be around boxing um are you from a boxing background or did you find your, your way into it somehow organically I think it's the second
1: part that you said, Um, just found myself organically, uh, been in uh, sports really all my professional career as a physio and uh, sometimes things just happen, never thought about boxing as being one of the main sports I'll be working in my life, especially when I started uh, my career as a physiotherapist, Um, but yeah, it's become a massive passion now. What did you think when you started your career as a physio? Um, I I wanted to work in sports. So it was always going to be sports. You always want to be sports. Um, I want to obviously work in the big stages that, um, you know, physios want to work in in sports, whether it is in the Olympics or whether it is in a professional environment. But, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, you have a vision. That vision can be a bit blurry at times. But, um, you know, as I always tell everybody, as long as you've got your daily missions as long as you're doing certain things sometimes timing a bit of good fate and a bit of hard work just brings certain things together and you
0: feel that like where you are now things
1: just clicked in a uh, in a nice way oh yes i mean uh, I've, I've been with boxing now for the last 14 years um i mean people who follow me on social media they will know me as the boxing physio uh they'll see me around the the boxing circuit in the corners uh doing uh catman cornerman stuff which um, i know it's inspiring younger professionals to try and even go into that area that love combat sports Um, but again it's um, i mean i've I've done lots of travels with boxing lots of trips lots of experience and yeah i do enjoy it
0: so you said 14 years in boxing 14 years in boxing yeah and is it has it all been with team gb yes it's been with team gb Cool. And then you said two years before that, you're working in the same building. So was it, I'm assuming it was still Team GB, just another sport.
1: Yes. Um, so I've been, I've been in Sheffield now for the last uh, 16 years. And uh, the first two years I was working with the national volleyball team. Um, we were preparing back then for the London Olympics. Mm. And uh, then around 2009, uh, boxing, which were based in the same building, we're uh, looking for a hat physio. Uh, I got approached, and we spoke about it. Obviously, then decided to put my name in the hat. You know, did the official things, did an interview, and uh, came positive from there. But you know, GB boxing isn't wasn't then what it is now. You know, it was a successful outfit, but not as successful as probably the last decade really, um, where it's grown from strength to strength. And everybody who knows. GB boxing, even the culture, you know, is it's a fantastic culture that we work in.
0: Is there an Olympic GB's Olympic Centre in Sheffield?
1: Yes, that's uh, that's what it is really. So has it know. always been here? Uh, well, it's been there definitely since 2000, and try and go back now, uh, probably 2000 and six 2007 yeah um and then in 2009 they opened they moved to a new venue so since 2009 there's this new venue uh for those who don't understand what we mean by gb great britain yeah. is basically um the three home nations so scotland England, and wales that have their own setups anyway so you know when you see them at tournaments a lot of times you'll see them competing as the home nations you know you see English boxers you see Welsh boxers you see Scottish in fact uh, the Commonwealth's last year which were held in Birmingham you know they were the home nations but the the best of those three home nations usually come on to Great Britain and then Great Britain is the vehicle to go to the Olympics um, and I mean it's great for me because Currently now, I'm actually in my fourth Olympic cycle. Fantastic. Um,
0: so how is that dynamic of, yes, it's Team GB and we're representing GB um, and it's big and I'm sure people are thankful and inspired by the opportunity given to represent GB, um, but you're still like managing people from different places in a way.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, need, you need to respect the fact that you've got the three home nations that there are different associations, different backgrounds. And I'm sure, you know, there's always going to be, especially when it comes to, like, the Commonwealths, there's always a bit of that rivalry. And I think it's a positive rivalry to have. But, um, you know, I myself hail from a different country. And yeah. so I can understand more more than, than anybody that diversity and inclusivity is very important. So for me, I don't see... Uh, nationalities. I see the athlete mm. that obviously, um, because I work for GB, I wear the GB flag uh, proudly.
0: I've been wearing it for many years now. Yeah, is, is that strange? Cause you said you're originally from Malta.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I'm originally from Malta. You're uh, your Maltese. I'm uh, Maltese or Malteser as people <laughs> like to say.
0: <laughs> Sorry about the <this> stupid question. <laughs>
1: no. Um, but, um, yes, um, I, uh, I do find that you know, having been now away from Malta, well, I've been now probably, what, 23 years away from uh, from the country, I think I still hold Malta and Maltese athletes. Um, it's nice to see how uh, they progress. But uh, one of the reasons I left Malta many years ago is because I knew that, you know, we don't have the numbers of athletes. We don't have the resources to be competing at the highest levels. So for me... Um, going abroad actually was important and I didn't actually come to England first of all I went uh, to Greece because that's where the first Olympics was going to be after I graduated so I finished 2004, in, 2004 2004 was the Athens Olympics and I graduated as a physio in 2000 well and you went through your education in Malta yes I, well my undergraduate my basic education was in Malta and then uh, well I've done diverse studies the process i'm actually still studying now so <laughs> believe it or not you never stop
0: yeah are you so are you studying anything like official now
1: yeah yeah i'm actually um well fingers crossed i'm finishing my phd wow in, uh, it's actually in boxing uh, interestingly so the main injuries in boxing are the hands and wrists so i was always keen to understand how the wrist moves when a boxer hits and so you know from the interest and passion it actually turned into a phd study so we publish different papers um every now and again i post about these papers to try and educate a lot along the wrapping you know how to wrap hands but um yeah hopefully i'll be submitting my thesis now end of july and finishing that
0: wow so good yeah good luck with that that's that's (laughs) awesome um so how does the wrist move when with the punch the impact what does happen to the wrist
1: well, when, when at least with the studies we have done so far, when you when the boxer hits uh, an object, you know the wrist goes down and also moves in a particular way. So actually moves towards the pinky. Um, it's quite funny because they've done some studies over the years in different sports activities of daily living, and they call it the dart throwing motion, just so like you know when somebody's throwing mm. a dart. Um, but I think what was interesting for me is because of the way it moves. It helps us understand why certain injuries happen but also if you're trying to protect the hand and you're trying to reduce the injuries then it gives you an idea of what you should be doing more of or less of and particularly myself because i've been wrapping hands for the last 16 years also um so that's become one of my big things and passions and um i mean even now as we're recording at the end of this week i've got a fight Um, not myself I've got a boxer so I'll be wrapping his hands Um, so that research turns immediately into the applied knowledge so you're trying to cross that bridge
0: straight away so you're saying so when someone punches and they hit something the wrist moves towards the pinky
1: moves towards the pinky and also drops down.
0: So so if I'm punching with my right hand, my yeah. wrist will move right and down.
1: Yeah, so it Almost. does this. So it flexes, mm. so bends down, mm. okay. and then it moves towards the pinky
0: also at the same time. Very interesting. And so the effect of the taping, the way the taping is done, will affect the movement of the hand when it's punching something?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last study, which we published even this year, mm-hmm. actually showed that, at least with the technique we used, it reduced the motion by about 30%. So, you know, if you, if you just put a bandage, a normal bandage, and then you put the same bandage, but you put tape, the tape actually had a bigger effect because it's it did two things. One, it reduced the motion, which means less stress. But also, interestingly, it slowed down the motion. Um, it's a bit like the matrix. It's like slow things down, um, which means that, again, if it slows things down, again, there's more inference. Does it allow the muscles to control things quicker so by slowing things down almost slowing time down does it allow the active control you know mm-hmm. we like to call it stability is it um, that stability to have be more effective so again with once with these studies you try and make inferences of what could be happening but like anything else you do studies you know you need more studies and more studies and more studies but it gave us a lot of good information especially because no one else has done it before
0: and has it changed the way you rap now? Like you said, this weekend you'll be rapping someone before a fight. Has that changed over your last 14 years in boxing?
1: It's it's done two things. It's reinforced certain things that mm. I used to do. I think the reason I went into these studies mm. was because I was applying certain things and seeing certain effects. But some of the things that I learned through these studies were new. Like I didn't know that the wrist was going to move towards the pinky, for example. So... That's important for me because, you know, when I'm wrapping a hand, if a boxer puts his his hand to be wrapped, a lot of times they, they put their hand in a, in a different position than you'd expect. It's not neutral. It's not like balance this. They just put it in a certain position. So I'm always readjusting based on that knowledge at the back. So I think that's where it's useful to have done this research because it gives me certain ideas on where to try and place the hand in the best position. Trying get the best effects, and also when I'm applying the tape, knowing the injuries, knowing how the wrist moves, what can I do? It gives me that little bit
0: extra on why I should be doing certain things. Boxing is, as an Olympic sport, um, like other sports, and unlike some others, is it's all amateur, right? In the Olympics to compete,
1: yeah, it's a funny thing because I always joke about it. I think. The word amateur. I know, I know.
0: The word know. amateur
1: doesn't reflect it, but it is yeah. amateur. Yeah, yeah. I think where people get a bit confused is at Olympic boxing, it's tournament boxing because in order for somebody to succeed, they have to box four or five times over a period of two weeks. And which doesn't happen in the professional realms, doesn't happen in the professional because in the profession, you will not box, you know four or five times in two weeks. You'll box, you know, you could be boxing once every two weeks if you're in the lower ranks and then you build it up and then maybe boxing once once a year if you've you know, you're really at the top of, of your game. And obviously you're doing more rounds. But it's the same thing typically they do three minutes. But even nationally, if you're an amateur boxer, you're boxing for a club, you wouldn't be boxing those four or five times. Not unless you're selected by the national team. And then you go and compete in a tournament and maybe you're boxing again three or four times. But the reality, yes, the classification is amateur versus professional. And there
0: are differences between amateur and professional. And have you worked with professional boxers as well? Who, yes. as professionals, not ones who transitioned? Um, no, I've, to be fair, all the boxers that I've worked with were the ones that transitioned from mm-hmm. GB boxing into professional. Because they've been doing so, like so well the last decade or so.
1: Well, they've been doing well. They went to the Olympics. They... Won their medals, they went through the system, and you know, it's nice that they wanted to continue to work with me. So, you know, I've worked with um, some boxers from the London Olympics, um, and then obviously in the recent era, so boxers have been to the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, I've been working with some of them at the moment. So, in fact, the boxer who's um, I'll be working with at the end of this week one to the olympics the recent ones and won a bronze medal so it's nice to almost be part of the journey and help them throughout as much as i can throughout this this uh, their career really as a professional
0: yeah and um so in terms of fitness performance which we can get into um is training a and you know a team gp boxer a lot different than training a professional boxer because you, they are heading into a potentially four or five fights in two weeks?
1: Yeah, I think um, you have to see, that, well, first of all, there are different styles. So if you, if you are uh, an amateur boxer, you are going into different tournaments over the year. So it's like Olympic tournament type style. And you usually have three minutes, a bit like the professionals, but you only have three rounds. So you can imagine that the way you're going to train them is different than somebody, for example, who's going to do um, six rounds or 12 rounds and then their next mm-hmm. fight maybe is in six weeks after that or eight weeks after that. I mean, you still have to prepare a boxer starting from one phase and build them up. You still have to have the basic characteristics of fitness, aerobic and, uh, and uh, anaerobic. Um, they still have to be quick you still need to have the power. So there's a lot of metrics that translate. But the way you probably train one and the other will have certain differences.
0: Are you now being 14 years into boxing? Um, then are you pretty proficient with the technical side of boxing? Um,
1: I understand it, but I will never say that I'm, you know, an expert. I think the experts are the coaches. That's their job. I think it's the same like the coaches will have some understanding around injuries, they'll have understanding around strength and conditioning, they might have some understanding around nutrition and weight ma- and making, but they're not experts. That's why, uh, especially if you think about GB, we actually surround ourselves with experts to be able to provide the information needed to the coaches. The, the technical experts are the coaches, and probably I'd say the discipline um or practitioner, to use another word, that's probably closest to a coach, is your performance analyst. Because those are the ones that are videoing the bouts, tagging them, looking at certain traits, um, working closely with the coaches around that. So I think those are probably the better people that understand performance. I think from a physio point of view, if you think about it, we need to understand certain elements of technique linked to the injury, So, mechanism of injury is it an acute traumatic or is it an overuse type mechanism? Is it more because it's a a jab or a hook or a cross type shot? Is this a common thing we see or not? So, you have to understand certain technicalities because otherwise, then you can't speak the language of the coach.
0: So, as like it's you know being ten years in whenever that was a few years ago, do you feel that even doing your day to day job with the athletes is? Just um easier in a way, like having just knowing the game better, knowing the sport. Oh, yeah, better.
1: yeah. I mean, I think
0: if you if you've been working many years
1: in a sport and you don't understand the sport, I think you're missing a trick because your job is to learn the sport. It's not just to learn the technical part, but the tactical parts to learn. You know what they do as a nutrition base, what they do as their training. So you almost want to understand the athlete from different facets. And I think I've been privileged because in GB, we've got many coaches, really good coaches. We've had many athletes come through the program. So you learn from the athletes. But also, as I said, we've got many practitioners from different disciplines. I mean, just to name them, we've got um, so physios and doctors. So that's your medical part of things. Yeah. But then you've got psychologists. You've got performance lifestyle advisors that can help around lots of areas which are linked to the sport, but not directly in a way. But they're helping the athletes to, um, you know, have a better stay. But then also you've got a certain Core um, disciplines like strength and conditioning, physiology, nutrition, and then as I've mentioned, their performance analysis. So, as you're going through your own journey as a practitioner, you've learned you learn many things. And I mean, again, the other privilege I have is in the last I think it's five years now. Uh, I've actually taken the role of head of performance, um, which means I actually facilitate these disciplines. I try and help the athletes where we need to focus certain areas more i try and speak with the coaches and try and speak with the athlete and try and understand what this athlete needs more or less to help in the journey so and because of that then you're always trying to keep learning uh, even better things to support the program. so
0: so like you listed now a a bunch of different um uh, categories of performance um, if you will that all build up together to help the athlete perform Um, so are you there to kind of regulate it to kind of regulate the um, you know um, how much does an athlete maybe need from a psychologist or how much does he need from the analyst or how much does he need from the strength and conditioning standpoint i I,
1: I don't use the word regulate because i think facilitate is a better Mm. word because i see myself a bit like like a bit and in between um, trying to facilitate say different disciplines with the athlete and then at the very top obviously we've got our performance director who ultimately he is in charge of performance you know he's the most accountable but what i try and do is try and help him facilitate certain things he might have certain questions about certain athletes and or you know could we do more of this or less of this and it becomes discussions with the disciplines yeah i mean i i trust that every discipline knows what they're doing but sometimes what can missing is the alignment of disciplines so for example the strength and conditioning coach and the nutritionist could be doing their jobs but maybe they're not fully aligned on a particular um, pathway for an athlete because it's not been properly discussed so I might ask the questions like okay how are you two collaborating together to try and get to the the, the place you want to Uh, and sometimes you facilitate things over years so much that becomes an organic thing. You know, these disciplines will work better together. You don't need to chase these disciplines anymore. But I remember years back, we probably were a bit more silo approached, whereas now I can see the disciplines revolving better around each other. Uh, we've got lots of WhatsApp groups. We meet once, once a week as, as the whole team uh, coming together as a disciplines. Um, so, you know, again, it's all about trying to support athletes better.
0: Was it hard to like add that extra layer of your um, responsibilities to Team GB? You know what?
1: Initially, I thought it wasn't going to be hard, but it was very hard. <laughs> I think um, I think when you are when you are in a sport and suddenly you move into a higher level than the peers that are around you, even though you've been there many years and experienced, sometimes you can get challenged because you know they expect certain things out of you. But equally, it's that sort of balance between, you know, these guys, you know, some of them, you can call them mates because you've been with them many years, but now you're in a position where you're actually their line manager. Yeah, it's an official thing. Um, but I think I had to build, their, I had to build trust. That's the main thing. They had to, I had to be in a position where they understand, I'm not just doing this as a role, I'm doing it to help them. I'm doing it to help the athletes. I am at the service of the program. Um, and the reason I say this is because sometimes people transition into new roles and they forget where they're coming from. You know, an athlete becomes a coach. They forget they were an athlete once. Um, a practitioner like myself, a physio, you become uh, a leader in a in a organization and you forget that you are or were a okay. practitioner. And I think... I can see sometimes those things happening and it surprises me how much, I don't know whether people resented what they were doing before or they forget, but sometimes the way they approach other practitioners then becomes a bit condescending. And I don't like that. I like to make sure that, you know, it's it's fair, there's accountability, there's clarity. And so what I try and do in my day-to-day is just try and help how we can reduce the noises because noises, is, you know, it's like now we're talking. If there was noise in the background, it'd be distracting. Very. And in in a performance environment, um, noise can be very distracting. But the noise could be the grumbles of people. It could be the little things. It could sometimes uncertainties. Um, it might not be a true thing, but there is this story going around about something. So, I try and see myself as somebody that tries to iron out certain things. And because to put it this way, I've got the stripes to do it Um, beyond a physio. Now I can do it as a, as a leader. I try and make sure that I can facilitate these, these elements. What is the goal for team GB? Is it medals in the Olympics? I mean, it is success. Now success has different forms. Success has the form of medals, but I don't think you can have medals and compromise the welfare of the athlete and have a compromised culture either. Um, you know, not to jump into it too much, but we have heard about different sports in the UK and in other countries where the culture was a bit toxic. So you can't have medals and then a toxic culture. So I think for me, success has different faces. Success is the journey that we are embarking together as an organization. So from the PD to the coaches to the support staff to the athletes, there has to be a certain cohesion. There has to be everybody can say what they think, obviously respectfully, but you should have an opinion, you should have a voice. Um, if somebody's struggling, that we can recognize it and help them. Because a lot of these athletes and practitioners, they don't do a full cycle sometimes. You know, I've been there four cycles. Some people do a couple of years and leave for, for whatever reasons, but you don't want them to leave for the wrong reason. Yep. And so for me, success is somebody who, when they leave GB, whether it is with a medal, an Olympic medal, or success in many tournaments or maybe not success at tournaments, but they still leave thinking this was a good place to be. Yeah. And that also, that you know when they're leaving, they're leaving for the right reason, as we said. So you know, do they have a job lined up or are they turning pro? And if they're turning professional, are they turning at the right time? Have they been given the right advice? Have we helped them in the process? So for me, success is seeing that somebody actually is doing better once they leave, is it? It's like kids at home, is it? Every parent wants to see their par- their children
0: leave, but succeed as they leave. Hey, do you work with mostly young? Is it mostly young men? Um, not well. First of all, we've got both both genders. Oh, so you work yeah. with the women as well? Yeah, we've got, oh, okay. we've got the I man. Didn't, I didn't know
1: that. Very yeah, interesting. I mean. Uh, if we think about it, the... Uh, performance as well, both sides? Performance and health. So the, the main, the two main areas which I look after is performance and health. Um, so obviously, you know, from mental and well-being to the injuries, and then obviously from performance point of view, is again working with the coaches and the performance director. But we've had women on the program since London 2012, because London 2012 was the first Olympics where they, you know, women have returned to the scene. So it was really great. We had um, three women at the time. I mean, you know, everybody pretty much in the UK, if they know boxing, know about Nicola Adams winning the gold. Obviously, we had Anthony Joshua, who's uh, one of the boxers which I still work with at the moment. Um, But for me, it's really great to see because over the years, you've had more women weights, included in the Olympic Games. So whereas we had a handful of Uh, female boxers now we have much more and I think for me that's brought a different dimension to GB Boxing I think it's brought a different dimension to the uh, professional world I mean now you see um, women had lining shows you see sometimes even uh, not too long ago uh, end of last year we had an all women's uh, boxing show Um, and even myself I work in the pros both with the man and the woman so I think that's created um, a different world and we can see it in other sports, is it? The, the appetite is growing, there's more inclusivity. You can see it in football, you can see it in rugby, you can see it in many sports where maybe there was more of a minority around it, that there is more. And I think that's really positive because that means that you've got uh, female athletes, female boxers in this case, which are inspiring future generations and they can see a pathway you know you're a young female 10 years old 11 12 and you can see the the people like Lauren Price and Nicole Adams and Katie Taylor and all these other female athletes that have emerged over the years and currently are doing well you think you know what that could be me
0: yeah what is the what is the the name of um, of someone being in the corner
1: um, well there are different Oh so what's the one you used before? So the ones I use. So first of all, if you're in the corner, yeah. everybody is a corner man. Okay. Um well or corner yeah. woman yeah, because yeah, there yeah. are women also. So yeah. um but I, I'm a catman. So um, catman meaning that... Cat, like a catman? Yeah, so you know, cats, you know. Yeah, so yeah, one, yeah. one of one of the biggest roles is if a boxer comes back to the corner and they've got a bat cut, that's your job. Mm. Literally, that becomes your job. You, sh- you should be in the corner. You're the specialist that knows what to do. Oh, so like cut, like beauty. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, so, you. Yeah. so, you know, from nosebleeds to bat cuts over <laughs> the eyebrows, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, usually you've got the, the chief support, which is, tends to be the head coach, who typically is the one that you see in the ring. And then you've got the seconds, which are the other people that maybe will be passing the water or washing the, the gum shield and so on and so forth. So, But it's a bit like a Formula One pit stop. You know, you a boxer comes back, you know, within the uh, you've got a minute, you've got less than a minute. By the time the boxer comes back and then they leave, you've got less than a minute. But in that time frame. You have to work in cohesion. You have to work well together. You, you have to make sure you're not getting in each other's way. Mm-hmm. But what you're trying to do is make sure that you've allow the boxer to recover and go back again. Now, obviously, the recovery comes from all the training they have done. Let's be honest. It's not yeah. what you're going to do in the corner. But it's just enough to be able to refocus them, reset them. You know, sometimes, you know, I'll have the ice bags and a nice... Um, wet cold cloths that sometimes you're wiping their brows if there's no cut so that's nice. you know it's a nice feeling if you're in the corner I'm assuming if you're a boxer Uh, but main
0: thing if there's a bad cut that you can jump on it yes do they do the athletes retain any information in those 55 seconds that they have Because they always they when they in there they're obviously always exhausted, right? Even after the first round, you can see how everyone's exhausted, Um, and everyone's you can see everyone's yelling information at them and telling them different. Maybe change something, carry on with certain things. Are they retaining information? You think?
1: Not all the time, not all the time. I mean, and that's why you know my job is Mm -hmm. to say nothing, and that's that's why I like it. I mean, if I am also shouting in there and there's the hat coach saying something and somebody is saying something. You have three or four different things. Too many though. cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks. Um so, you know, for me I always think myself as whatever I do in my job, I have to be professional. Yeah. My job, being professional, is just not to say anything.
0: Is it your um, job to uh throw in the white towel if needed?
1: Uh no, that's not even my job. And again there, there are different rules different states as it goes but usually it'll be the 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 chief support so mm. the main person but i might see something and say something to the coach yeah. um you know i might have saw something and then we're having a chat um but usually like you know they might ask me the question you know something has happened and, and see. but no that's that's the coach's job but you know if something is not looking quite good i'd want to make sure that i've alerted them if not not seen it or just to see what they're thinking but luckily, I've worked in corners with very experienced coaches. So, you know, I trust them as much as they trust me also. So the nice thing is all the corners I've worked in, the professionals, I've worked with very good teams and that have been in many fights, either as the amateurs or also as the professionals. And so it's nice that we trust each other and t- typically before we go out, I usually do like a little roundup with the coaches and we just have like a quick Okay, so you're gonna be on this side, I'm gonna be on this side, uh, I'm gonna do this, you're gonna do that. And then it's like ironed out, we're all happy. I know exactly what I'm doing, they know exactly what they're doing, and then let's let's rock on, really.
0: How is it working with someone like, um, I know you still do, but working with someone like Anthony Joshua when he got started, because he started pretty late, age wise, no?
1: Um, I think, no, I think he he still, I mean, he started boxing late, generally. But I think when he decided to turn pro, I think he was still in that sort of good good period. I mean, when he joined GB, that was 2010-10, um, he didn't spend much on GB. I think it was something like um, uh, 18 months. Uh, obviously, he went to the Olympics and everything. And then after the Olympics, he didn't go straight away, stayed a little bit, you know, looked at his options, but he had a gold medal around his neck. So his options were pretty much clear and good um, that you're going to go and get a good contract and then turn professional. So I've known AJ since 2010, really, and um, it's great, really, because when he joined GB, um, I mean, I don't like to say this, but he was technically a nobody. Um, but I never consider anybody a nobody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but he, nobody knew who oh, yeah, Josh no, was. he's obviously a superstar. Yeah. Then he won the gold medal and became a superstar. But in all those years, for me, you know, we still have that same similar relationship. That you know, there's I. Uh, Have a good relationship with him as an athlete and as a person. And luckily, you know, he still enjoys the work I do with him, Uh, still trusts me to do his wraps. You know, I wrap his hands before he goes into the fight. I'm in the corner and I, you know, again, look after if any cuts happen, um, any nosebleeds, whatever
0: it is, just make sure I can do my job. So cool. Um, And I know, because he's obviously so big now and everything and has seen so much success, but. In the early days, was there a um, differentiating factor about a guy who comes in and you can like almost just feel the energy that this guy is going to explode on the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, our, our, our performance director actually says it all the time. You've got two really categories in pro boxing. You've got heavyweights and everybody else. Um, and it's not disrespect to the other ways, because I think there are some fantastic boxers um, which have been proven and great track records. Yeah. But heavyweight is like everybody wants to watch the heavyweights because, you know, there's always going to be this big battle there. And um, I think when somebody like AJ walked on the scene in GB Boxing, yes, he might have been an unknown at the time, but he had that hunger You know, he wanted to learn, and he had that raw talent. And I think when somebody comes in and has that raw talent, has, you know, certain abilities, you can see that with the expertise that there is on GB, that they can harness that. I mean, turning somebody within a very short period into an Olympic success, I think for me, that's fantastic. So he had the natural abilities, he just needed the guidance. And then when he turned professional... He maintained that guidance and that helped on the route. And I know even now, like he's obviously, he works with a different coach than when he first started. But ultimately, you know, he's a seasoned boxer now. He's still learning, a bit like myself. I said earlier, I'm still doing
0: studies. Everyone is, no? Everyone's. uh, Yeah, yeah. No one one figured out everything yet.
1: No, and the thing is, like, I mean, if if people who actually are honest will say, the more I learn, the less I know. And I think that's true for, for anything. So even as good as your as seasons as you are, you always feel like there's more to learn. I think though, you know, if you're an athlete and especially if you've been in the scene for so long, I think it's important to always remember that even though there's still more to learn, it's important to know what your strengths are. And I think the same, it's like for you and for me, if I don't recognize what my strengths are and use those and try and maximize those, I keep focusing on my weaknesses, which sometimes happens also in organizations. You know, they keep focusing on people's weaknesses, and maybe that's a 5%, whereas your strengths could be like a 60% of you. So I think it's important we recognize our strengths and we maximize those, whilst, yeah, we can still work on those weaknesses. But everybody has weaknesses. So I think it's it's that mindset, is making sure that even, you know, whether you're an athlete or you're a non-athlete, is making sure that you're focusing on the right things. Um, in the beginning of your career, you might not really know what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. So you're still making it as you're going along. But I think sometimes that's my point, really. You know, we, we shouldn't just be trying to learn about the weaknesses, but learn about our strengths and how to turn those into really, really
0: powerful uh, weapons, really. What are the most common um injuries that you see in boxing and you know uh, maybe less I'm talking about like you know the the punches but more for like training injuries um well the
1: the main injuries you get in boxing really are the 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 upper limb. um hands uh, w- including shoulders yeah yeah so you know hands wrist elbow shoulders um hands why you know when, when people see all the things i post on social media i use this hashtag all about the upper limb hashtag learning together because i think it started in boxing you know that's that's the the main interest in the upper limb but um you know within the environment i work because i don't just work with boxing i work with many sports Mm -hmm. because i i consult so in in the olympic and paralympic setting in the uk and even in professional sports i get lots of Either practitioners, so other physios or other um, or coaches sometimes, or the athletes themselves asking me for advice, uh, and even in the teachings that I do, I do all about the upper limb really, hands, wrists, elbows, shoulders. But if you ask me, what is the main injury in boxing out of everything? Um, it's actually the hands and wrists. Hence, why that interest in the studies I'm doing. So hands, the hands and wrists can become the biggest burden of a boxer, and you can almost imagine it because those are the areas which are contacting all the time. Always
0: impact, right? Yeah, Yeah, and
1: so, I mean, the two main injuries that you get so, is, is your knuckles yeah, and sort of the back of the hand. So those are the two areas where, you know, even a boxer who's currently professional and gets an injury, they'll seek me out. Typically, I can almost say, okay, it's either going to be a knuckle or it's going to be the back of the hand. Those are the main areas.
0: So even... Um you know, even just the punching bag, warm-up drills, things like that have a heavy impact?
1: Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I mean, we need, to, we need to remember that, you know, injuries don't just happen one-off. You get yeah. overuse also. Yeah. And so we need to think about with, for example, the knuckles, you could actually get more injuries from training than competition because you spend more time in training than in competition. The only thing that you can get more in competition, and that's from the data and analysis we have done, you can have a higher exposure, meaning that because you only spend a little time in competition, however, when you compare that little time versus training, the risk can be much, much higher. I mean, if I look at the last Olympic cycle, I was looking at the data, I think you have 70 times higher risk in a competition to get a hand injury than in training. However when you look at the total number of injuries trainings it's training because you know you are trying to prepare athletes to be the best in the world in the olympics so it's it's a measurement of training volume it's a measurement of them learning how to use the equipment properly so wrapping well putting on the right gloves uh, making sure they rest on the weekends sometimes they don't rest on the weekends you need to remind them because we have a it's a busy program but people want to keep training all the time thinking that you know if you have breaks it's 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 bad it's a weakness and a lot of boxers learn eventually when they get injuries and they say oh you know what Ian you were right Uh, and I tell them look it's not about me being right or wrong but I've been so long in boxing I've seen it over and over again um you see it with those boxers who are they really want to achieve they're really driven but sometimes they overtrain
0: yeah I um I don't know if I've said this on the, on the podcast before, but is a quote that I heard recently. Um, it's just a. It was actually this um, podcast that I listened to about uh, stoicism, and that the hardest discipline to be disciplined about is discipline. <laughs> so I love I, so. I, I like that. that. Yeah, I like that one too, um, because I think boxing, other athletes, all professions really, um, it's very hard if you are dedicated, if you are dis- a disciplined person. It's very also very difficult to put aside a time. Uh, put time aside for resting and recovering oh
1: yes and you know it's funny because a lot of athletes even boxers they always talk about training hard training this 110 percent type approach but i say it's not about training hard it's about training smart and smart means train hard when you have to but recover when you have to and if you do that then you will progress in your talent in your skills in your physicality You're allowing your body to recover so that you're not bringing on the injuries. Now, of course, you can have these one-off injuries. It's part of the sport. It's a combat sport. But what you don't want to be having is these stress-type injuries that happen over time. You know, I've seen boxers sometimes get injuries in their feet. It's like stress reactions of the bones because they've not done the running properly. You know, they've done the weight a bit too crashed. Uh, They suddenly go from running... Uh, a few miles a week to suddenly they've tripled or quadrupled their mileage mm-hmm. and they get these injuries. With good intentions. With good intentions, yeah. but probably the, the, the wrong approach. Yeah. And so my job is then to say, look, okay, you have this injury. Let's find out what it is, first of all. And then to educate them and say, look, this is the reason why this is a brought on. Um, but also is making sure that we protect the boxers by working well with the coaches because sometimes... It's not just the boxers, it's the coaches. You know, some coaches can be really good and know how to measure the load and do really a good job over a long period of time. Others can be a bit too much um, reactive, as in they don't, maybe they've not really planned the next four, five, six weeks, and they're taking a bit too much um, on the cuff. And as a result of that, then you don't know what's happening, your undulations. And there's actually very good studies and research on, on loading that, you know, if you load too much um, and then you maintain that too much and obviously you're risking so because I would never have a problem somebody's done a bit too much but have they come down back from where they were to then maybe go again rather than okay you've gone really up and now you've maintained it because you're just risking so it's a bit of the education I think an athlete should be uh, an amateur scientist because they should learn a little bit about the goods and the bads practices yeah I like Um, that and if if you're not good even as an amateur scientist. Then surround yourselves with people that know it. And for me, it's really positive to see um, professional boxers, for example. Ten years ago, they didn't have people around them. Now, in the corners, uh, not in the corners. I mean, in the um, in the changing rooms. Yeah. You see the strength and conditioning person doing the the warm ups, and you know they've worked with them before. You hear about them talking about the nutritionists they're worked with and the meals they've been given. So there's definitely more support and a team um, around everything. Yes, yeah. yes, because I think before you just used to have the athlete and the coach. Now don't get me wrong. I think the economics have helped too. I think professional boxing, particularly in the UK, is is grown. There are more promoters. Um, I think there's you know fair approaches to the athletes you know athletes are getting paid athletes are going on shows Um, whereas 10 years ago I don't think it had that same approach as it has now and as a result of that you know if you're an athlete and you can afford to spend more on your support yeah that will give you not better performance only and health but longevity because what you don't want to do is have a short career because you've not managed to look after you in the right way and you know especially if somebody's been on GB I'd want to hope that they take that knowledge with them and if they can't use our own expertise um, in the professional world that they can surround themselves with the right people. Uh, Although finally I do get um, calls and uh, emails every now and again uh, from these athletes or messages saying oh uh, can you just help me on this can I get some advice. So you get all these um, alumni uh, that still contact me which is quite nice really.
0: Yeah that's fantastic. what does the rehab protocol look like when a you know, when a boxer has one of these uh, regular type um, knuckles or top of the hand injuries? I mean, it's,
1: it's ongoing all the time. And luckily, I've got a, a great team because um, we've got many doctors, many physios who work with me. The main thing is understanding how much it's affecting their performance at the moment. So how much is affecting the training availability? So can they continue training with this injury? Um, can they not train because it's too painful? is there anything serious we need to think about that, you know, they shouldn't be training at all. Uh, is there a competition coming up soon? Is there a, a major competition coming up soon? So I think sometimes when you're working at this level, when an injury happens, it's almost like a scroll down on your computer. Uh, you know, you have like 30 items that you're in within two seconds, your head has just gone through. And usually I ask certain questions. Okay. What's, this tournament, uh, was an next tournament for this athlete? Um, what can they do? What can they do? So a lot of times also we have some good objective measures too. So we take things like, you know, how much can they squeeze, for example, the hand to see their ability, how much function they have. Maybe we're measuring range of motion, maybe a knuckle, if it's stiff or not uh does it look well. do you find
0: that athletes are like holding back and not sharing maybe how injured they are or how much they're in pain or how much it affects their performance i i see it both ways you know
1: i see sometimes some athletes obviously want to hold back because they don't want the injury to hold them back i yeah, think it's
0: scary to miss the tournament for example oh
1: yes it's scary i think i think uh, athletes who first joined the program, I think we see that more because... Mm-hmm. They want to prove themselves. They have to prove themselves and they're afraid that we, because you have an injury, you're going to somehow get deselected. So I think sometimes there's a bit of education that happens. Yeah. Um, sometimes though, you know, and it, it, it's not very common luckily, but sometimes you could have an athlete that could use an injury as an excuse because they don't feel ready enough and they don't feel that they confront the coaches and say, look, I don't feel ready enough. And sometimes they may use an injury as an excuse. I think that's very rare, um, but can happen. So I think, you know, we have to have like a balanced approach. I always say, you know, as much as you have to remember the person and the character, when looking at injuries, you have to take them at face value, Yeah. you know, because sometimes, yeah, I don't know, you could have a coach thinking, is he just making up the injury? And you just like, you have to be careful in having that, strong opinion about the character of it. You you should actually try and look objectively at the injury and feel, is it a black and white injury or is the grey injury? And by grey area I mean, you know, is it something that if we push through it, it's not gonna be a problem anyway. So maybe we can push through it. And we educate the athlete, we educate the coach and we make what I like to call an informed decision. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, as I tell everybody, it's not my call. I'm gonna give all the information necessary i want to help the situation. But ultimately, the decision comes down to the athlete. Do they want to go? Yes or no? And then it comes down to the program, you know. Do, Will they
0: let him go or not? You know, yeah.
1: do they want him to go, first yeah. of all? And, you know, because of the situation. So a lot of times I've been in situations where I've sat down with the athlete and the coach, for example. Maybe I've had even other support staff in the room. And we're chatting about a particular situation because... You know, it's been a bit of a troublesome injury. We're now, for example, three weeks away from a competition and we need to make sure that there's clarity. You know, clarity about the injury, clarity about how it feels, clarity about the athlete feels. Because, let me put it this way, if an athlete doesn't feel confident, what I can't say is, well, yeah, the injury is not a problem, you should go. That's, that's not my role. My role is to say whether this is a serious injury or not, whether there should be anything to worry about, whether it's something that... We can manage in the short term and then in the long term, there's a different plan. So what's plan A and B? Um, Are there any other plan C's, D's and D's that we can consider? And just put everything on the table and hopefully we walk away. Whatever decision is being made is that we're all happy leaving the table. And that's the main thing for me is making sure, you know, that that there's that extra bit of information. Uh, I think a younger me, and I see it a lot with younger uh, professionals working in, in sports, They get very emotional about situations and, you know, they're just thinking, I need to protect the athlete. Well, you need to protect the athlete, but, you know, it's a balance between welfare and performance. It's not as easy that you can just say, every athlete with an injury should stop training. That was the case. We wouldn't have a program because everybody would be sidelined. Um, I've seen it sometimes with new physios starting for example you know half the squad has been benched and you're just like well um, so it's just learning and knowing you know what is those subtleties and I think what I can bring to the table is um, with the knowledge and experience decisions that can be made instantaneously I mean sometimes I get my performance director on the phone ask me a few questions about an athlete and I'll give him an answer about certain things, which helps him to think, okay, yeah, the athlete is okay to go for this tournament. And so it's always about communication for me. Is that positive communication?
0: Yeah. And, you know, one that comes to mind is neck injuries. Neck injuries, yeah. Is that pretty common? Also, like, you always, you know, the fancy, uh, whether it's an Instagram uh, video of a boxer training or if you're watching a, you know, Creed, um, there's always the... um, the neck the (laughs) neck exercises you know picking up weights with the neck all these different things um so is yeah is it is neck a common um vulnerability i wouldn't say it's common but it is one of the injuries we need
1: to consider luckily it is not very common because from from the impact though yeah a lot of times it's from the impact so a lot of times you know can get hit in sparring for example or in competition and sometimes even the, the other opponent might be pushing them down so they can strain their neck Um, And as a result of that, you can have, sometimes you can have a bad neck. So it can actually affect you quite a bit. Um, I've seen a few bad necks over uh, my tenure in boxing. Uh, Sometimes they're a bit easier that you can manage quite quickly. And by the end of the week, they're already back training. I think the conditioning part is important. Uh, You mentioned the neck stuff. I think the funny thing is, so it's two things. I think conditioning the neck is important. But there is the good way and the bad way of conditioning. And I think sometimes what I see on social media, if you've been doing it all your life and you've built into it, um, I, I don't think that, you know, the way they do it the head on the ground and everything is bad. I think yeah. if you're trying to pick it up later on in the years, you need to give yourself time to build into it. But I think it's not just. Well, are, you, are
0: you referencing those, um, those Russian? Um, yeah,
1: I mean, and that's it. They're very much Russian, Kazakhstan sort of yeah. Asian type approach, um, which I think are really good because I mean they they do really have strong necks. But it's not just the necks; it's everything else. Is the shoulder muscles? Is the back muscles? So you can't just isolate to protect the neck. Yeah. it's neck muscles. It's the overall conditioning. Because at the end of the day, most of your power comes from your legs also. So, if you're trying to protect your neck, you want to be getting stronger legs. And that is the paradox of it. So, you can't just focus only on the neck. You need to focus on the whole body. And I think that's where it's important not to just isolate things only. You can do like add ons. You know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with doing, you know, a couple of times a week I'm doing it. But, you know, doing neck exercises every day, for example, is not a good approach. Um, you want to be doing it a couple of times a week, and also periodized as part of a general program.
0: Yeah, not just like a spurt of the moment. Yeah, and, and, try, yeah.
1: and definitely don't don't start doing them if you're an <laughs> athlete. Don't start doing them a couple of weeks before a competition. because yeah. sometimes I see people getting injured because oh I pulled my neck. And it's like what did you doing? I was doing these. Have you done them before? No. I saw them on Instagram or YouTube, <laughs> and I thought that'll help me in the fight. I mean, I always tell people don't try new stuff close to a
0: competition. (laughs) Um, That's an interesting concept you you mentioned and I think counterintuitive to most is that the power comes from the legs. Like, so even when you're throwing a punch, the power is coming from the legs.
1: Yes, yes. The drive comes from the legs. I mean, you think about many sports, you know, able-bodied, standing people, you are driving from the feet. If you actually had to take a snapshot of somebody hitting the opponent and particularly um, dropping the opponent. If you had to see how their body was before and then after, you'll see the wind-up of the trunk, you'll see the hip, you'll see the the leg, you know, the driving from the feet. And actually, the nicest thing, you know, if you went to learn boxing and you've never done boxing and you went to a good coach, they wouldn't be showing you how to throw punches, hopefully. They'd be showing you footwork, because footwork is the basis. If you have good footwork, everything builds from there. Mm. It's almost like saying, um, if you're learning basketball, you should learn how to move before starting to use the ball, um, because it's all about footwork, movement, forward, backward, side. Once you have that nailed on, the punches become easy. It sort of follows through. So in fact, if you're trying to generate the shots from your upper limb, you get injured. So um, and it, it, is, yeah. it is an interesting concept, too, because I know sometimes people have injured, for example, the legs. You know, they went over an ankle or they've hurt some parts. And sometimes I've had the coaches saying, oh, can they just sit down on a high stool and just hit the bag?" for example? <laughs> I say, well, you can, but it's not natural. And I say, well, what do you mean? They're still doing boxing. I say, well, you're all the time teaching them to drive through the legs and the hips. Whereas suddenly if they're sitting down, they can't drive through that leg the same way. So what you're going to do is you're going to overload the upper limb. So you might create more problems because now you have more injuries um, or more stress in the area. Plus it's not the right technical thing. You're just whacking something. So unless you're doing it because you're stressed um, and you want to get a bit of stress out of you, I suggest not to do those sort of things. Um, I suggest trying to get yourself in a position where you can get those legs sorted and then get back to it.
0: I have to ask you about a tricky one. Yeah, go on. Concussions. Concussion, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm assuming they're common, um, or you know, again, I'm using the word common, um, but um, I'm assuming it's a um, it's something that people are aware of and want to avoid i'm hoping at all especially today Um, again i'm not really from the boxing scene you know my connection to boxing is more um you know the the fluff around you know the social media stuff um but other sports you know like american football even uh you know regular english football uh soccer so it's um you know the concussion is always spoken about and no one's there punching you directly in the face
1: yeah, I mean, concussion is a big topic. It's um, probably even 10 years ago, doesn't have the same um, focus that there is now. And I think it is important that there is that focus. And I think even in a sport like boxing, because the aim of the sport is to concuss you. <laughs> Literally, you know, what people try and do is, yes. is, is, is knock you out. Um, but one of the things that people need to understand is you know, you don't get concussed in every session that you're doing. You don't get concussed in every fight you're doing. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you need to make sure. Is One is, you know, us as professionals is knowing what concussion means, knowing how to recognize the signs and symptoms, what tools to use and measure that. So when we are traveling with the boxers, in fact, we make sure we do recognize those things. But it's important for the boxer to know how to reduce the risk. So you mentioned... The neck, for example, strengthening the neck. For me, it's not just about the neck injuries. That can help with concussion because there are good studies showing that you have strong musculature and actually you train for anticipation. That can help.
0: So it's similar maybe a bit to the wrist thing you were discussing before, allowing the body to...
1: Yeah, exactly. So you you have to sort of like, obviously a lot of the adaptation they do is in sparring, but you you have to have the separate conditioning to prepare for that. But then the other thing is making sure that Boxes are matched in the right way. If you're completely outmatched, your chances of getting a concussion are high. Mm. You know, you, you don't want to go in the ring with Anthony Joshua, for example. <laughs> I don't want to go in the ring with Anthony Joshua. But, you know, if you're going in, you go with somebody at your same level. Yeah. I think that's where it is important that the matchmaking is always important. And, you know, earlier we we're talking about you know uh, who chucks in the white towel. If you see that, you know, you weren't too sure, you thought it was a good match, but when you went there, your boxer was is completely outclassed. You know, stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, end of the day, more than winning or losing, what you don't want is a boxer to get hurt and lose the flavor to the sport. So you need to make sure you protect them.
0: And, and the longevity. And the longevity, of, is it? Yeah. You
1: know, if they're not ready now against this boxer, give them 12 months, give them two years, give them three years, whatever it is. Hopefully they'll be ready, maybe even better than the other boxer. But if you put them too early with certain boxers, you could ruin their career. And that's why it is a responsibility of, you know, the, the matchmakers, the promoters, the coaches, everybody working with the boxer and the boxer themselves. I think these days boxers can see videos, they can do their little analysis themselves also and decide whether they feel comfortable. They can look at the track record of the that, of that boxer and it should be a team decision.
0: Are the boxers, um, I can see a world where boxers would want to jump in always too early because you know you have that self-belief that you can beat that person. You don't want to wait those extra twelve months or yeah. eighteen months that they. Your your team wants you to wait. Um, so is that sometimes an issue where the team people like yourself have to hold the boxer down and make them maybe um, focus on patience and longevity? Well,
1: luckily it's not my job, so I'm really thankful for that. But I think my end, it's, um, it's, you know, the coaches, and I can see it both in the Olympic setup and in professional, the good coaches are the ones that protect the boxers by actually making the decisions before they even have to be in that position. Mm. So, and you know where it happens a lot of times is in the selection. So if you think about GB Boxing now, June, July is going to be the first Olympic qualifier. So the coaches have selected the boxers, they feel are ready for that event. Some boxers will be disappointed that they have not been selected. Now, some of them might be ready, but they've not performed as good as their counterparts. Other boxers are not ready at all. So they have to make a decision based on performance, but also health. And I think if you're always taking those two in account, you can't go wrong.
0: What are you, did you grow up uh, playing any sports or being a fan of a specific sport? I played many sports, uh, luckily, in my career. Um,
1: I've done even things like rock climbing and rowing and some more um, crazy sports like paragliding para and stuff oh, wow. like that. Um, But I've, I've always been somebody who had an interest to <laughs> try sports yeah. to understand them. So I think I've always been sporty myself it's probably helped me to be probably in the environment where I am, where I I enjoy that
0: environment. Yeah, but did you, um, being here now 16 years, have you become a Sheffield United fan, Sheffield Wednesday fan, or? I have to be very PC on that, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I don't even realize where I sit. Yeah. (laughs) Silly silly question. (laughs) Um, But fantastic. Look, um unfortunately um, we know um our time here is uh, coming to an end but um you know it's super interesting stuff and i told you i've been following you on linkedin specifically for a while um so do you want to mention the name of your linkedin page as well your instagram page and then maybe some of our listeners will, listeners will um because which most of them are you know either physios or therapists of some sort working athletes or just active people outside the athlete world um, and just give them an opportunity to maybe learn a bit more from uh, your personal balanced perspective on things.
1: Yeah, I think, um, so I do a lot of education, as people know, whether it is through single posts or courses, um, and it's mainly about the upper limb. So you can find me on the three main uh, social platforms. So on uh, LinkedIn, you'll find me as Ian Gat, uh, the boxing physio. You'll Find me on uh, Twitter as Ian Physio, and again, you'll find the boxing video. And same in on Instagram where it's Ian Gat Gatman. Uh, on all the three social medias, there's a link on my bio, and if you go on that link, you'll actually find courses and resources all about the upper limb. Uh, particularly, if you want to learn more about the upper limb, we have a two day course in person uh, where we do the shoulder, the elbow, and the hand and wrist. Very popular. Um, We do it all around the world. In fact, um, I'm doing one as we're recording um, now in June. We're doing one um, this week. In fact, uh, Thursday, Friday will be in Derby. But then at the end of the year, we've got many. We've got USA, we've got Lebanon, we've got Kuwait. um, Exotic. Belgium. So, you know, different places. But the nice thing is we try and educate therapists um, to try and improve their approach to the upper limb. We also do an online one, uh, which we do a couple of times a year, uh, which is a hybrid. So you got like uh, three pre-recorded um, one hour sessions where you can watch them in the comfort of your home. And then uh, still in the comfort of your home, we do a, a have a day, which is uh, live. So it means that people can come on and we can interact and even learn new material. But again, you'll find all my posts about courses we're doing, future things, conference webinars. Uh, posts about topics, which I think is important, you know, reference to articles. So if people want to learn more about the upper limb, and also if people have a special interest in boxing too, um, I try and give a flavor of both, you know, the wider upper limb region, which involves sports and non-sports, and then every now and again, there'll be a specific flavor on boxing, which I know Uh, some coaches may like, some athletes may like, some therapists that like to work in combat sports or would like to work in combat sports. So yeah, those are probably the main areas we tend to cover.
0: Fantastic. So Ian, again, pleasure having you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me an excuse to make my way to Sheffield. Um, And hopefully uh, we'll have you back on in the future. Thanks for having us.